the Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Hey folks, Jason Bond in the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom's here. Tom. Hi. Tom, man, a few words on the introduction. Sometimes, yes. Brendan's back with us today. If you've been listening to us through the late winter, spring, and, and summer, then you know we've had a few episodes that we've kind of pre-recorded. This is one of those. We're going to talk about peanut diseases, and it's not – at the time we're recording this, there's no peanuts in the ground. So if we say something that's not happening at the point that you're listening to this, then give us a, a little bit of slack there because we recorded this pre-plant. So it's a little difficult to not talk about the weather or the date well, or the right, day of the week. Right now it is sunny and, what, like 65 Something on that order, yes. I bet when we when we release this, it will probably be sunny, likely not 65. Sunny in 92. Yeah, and probably doesn't need to be 65 either. No, probably not. We'll probably be wishing for it, but... We could just skip straight through the end of spring into summer. Let's hope we don't do that. I think today's topic then is obviously one that we probably spend a good deal of time talking about in the state of Mississippi and certainly is an important topic and definitely a popular topic when it hits the Mississippi crop situation blog and anybody talks about it would be plant diseases and peanut. Yeah, it's probably uh, one of our biggest issues in peanuts, really. And if you look at it from a, a cost perspective, you know, fungicide costs is probably maybe the second largest cost behind seed costs. So, you know, it's a definitely a pretty significant management component of, of peanut. <clears throat> well, I'm going to be zero help on this particular topic. As I said, when we talked about peanuts before, I know next to nothing about peanut, and I certainly know know anything about peanut diseases. But my last contribution this morning, Brendan, you spent some time in Florida, right? Yep, yep. How would you sell a guy a cup of hot chocolate in Florida? Can you? <laughs> I guess <laughs> I that's don't my know. question. <laughs> I don't know. Ooh, careful. Uh, <laughs> it, it can get cold down there when the iguanas will fall out of the trees. I would think that would be one of those days where somebody might be looking for a cup of hot chocolate, depending upon how long they've been in Florida. Brendan answers a question with a question. <laughs> Strong. Not a wrong response. Probably the coolest I was ever in Florida was maybe coming out of a, a spring, cold spring. That's about the yeah, only time it, I'd it, want some hot chocolate. Cold and humid is always cold. It's colder, that's for sure. No doubt. I'm going to turn it over to you two and let you all talk about peanut disease. I will try to interject at some point with something that sounds remotely intelligent, but don't hold me to that. you got to give yourself a little bit more credit there. Brennan, why don't you walk us through some of the more important peanut diseases, at least from your perspective as the peanut specialist? What, what are most of your telephone calls revolve around on an annual basis. I guess we talked about some of the seed-borne diseases, so I'm gonna, I'll am gonna i kind of gloss over those. But, you know, looking at basically aspergillus, I'll just quote Bob Kimmerite on that one that, you know, really after the seed furrows close, there's not a whole lot you can do to manage those. So that's dressed with seed treatments and then furrow. But moving past that and season, I'd say there's probably two two major soil-borne diseases that I get the most calls about, and that would be rhizoctonia and southern blight. And I would say southern blight is probably by far the, the biggest issue that I see in peanut. 
really among all the disease as far as prevalence. Our disease pressure is pretty variable as you move across the state, you know, based on how our peanut acres are distributed you know, distributed, but, you know, some other diseases would be foliar diseases. So late leaf spot and early leaf spot, those are two more prevalent diseases too. So I'd say those are the four, rhizoctonia, southern blight, and early late leaf spot and late leaf spot. And I would say in the field calls that I've experienced in the years that I've been here, those would have been the main main concerns. And that was mostly a rhizoctonia, limerot, and a, and a southern blight. And the, the southern blight or the stem rot, I think, and that really depends upon where you are geographically in this country as to which disease you're looking at because they are all caused by what used to be Sclerotia morophsii, and I know this is going to blow Jason's mind. He's just going to probably roll his eyes at me from the other side of the room. That has now been renamed as Athelia morophsii. It's all the same fungus. Oh, it has? Yes. Uh, Mycologically, they have renamed that genus Athelia. Don't ask me why they did that. I'm behind on my reading. Because they can. Right. Why they did well, it. Well, but that's what, that's what a lot of mycologists do. They like to rename things. Oh, they change weed names all the time, too. And from a biology standpoint, that's the, the highbrow academia conversation as to are you a lumper or a splitter? And lots of mycologists these, what? Days, these days are splitters. They like to split fungal genera apart. Oh, lump them together or split right. them apart. You're either a lumper. So Helminthosporium would have been the best lumped genus. Well, they split that bad boy into four different genera, and those would be the bulk of your... G- genera being the plural of genus. Correct. It became... I was just interpreting. And I don't even remember, if I remember all of them, it's bipolaris, curvularia, dreschlera, and exerohylum. And exerohylum doesn't even exist anymore. I don't think they've renamed that genus. Good grief, man. It just this seems like a classic case of people that need more to do, is what it seems like to me. I can't say yes or no to that, but I would not disagree with that. I'm going to go out on a limb and say we don't have any high-browed mycologists listening to our podcast. (laughs) Probably not. No. No, we don't. But And that's probably... Not necessarily our target audience. Too much biology for this conversation. But I think our listeners should know that the southern blight, stem rot, athelia issue is the reason we don't suggest a rotation of soybean and peanut because that fungus goes to both of those plants. And then... Knowing that that's an issue, so Brendan, what do most consultants, retailers, and farmers really feel are some of the best management alternatives for that particular disease? Before I answer that, I'll uh, I'll throw another curveball into the naming because you may have also heard it as white mold. Correct. So that's just that's another common name, and I'm, I'm kind of disappointed on. The, Glad I, I, you I just, I just figured that. out how to pronounce sclerotium, so now I'm going to have to figure out how to say another White word. White mold, I actually had heard of that, and I was going to throw that out. I'm glad Brendan did it before I stuck my foot in my mouth. Well, and we should say, as a plant pathologist, a card-carrying plant pathologist, in fact, the, the name white mold, and in the, the years and the times that I've done a, some peanut calls, I wouldn't say a significant number, they, they'll call that disease white mold, but that doesn't mean that all white tufts of fungus growing in the field are the organism that causes the disease white mold, which is a really confusing situation because there are a tremendous number of soil-borne organisms 
that will produce a nice tuft or fungal mat or a group of mycelia that grow together, again, too much biology, that will appear white, but as it ages, it'll turn yellow. Is that like saying I got grass in my crop? And really then... It could be a bunch of different grasses. Correct. Well, and we should talk about then symptom or how those symptoms are expressed by that particular disease. Because if you part the canopy back, what are you really looking for? That's a good point to to go on the grass analogy because all those grasses could be problems, right? But not every white fungus is a problem. Correct. So the main thing about, I guess we'll just stick to southern blight that you'll see is you'll see the white hyphae, right? Hyphae, is that the plural or is that the singular version? Hypha would be singular, so hyphae would be plural. Okay, so I got it. Hyphae, so you see the the white fungal mats, and then uh, I guess the telltale sign is if it's growing on the plant and you scrape the you scrape the fungus off the the plant, you'll start seeing necrosis. Correct. So where if it's non pathogenic, you still have healthy tissue under it. So that's that's one telltale sign, and then depending on when the infection is, you'll get the sclerotia, which are the reproductive structures. And those, those look like little little BBs, but smaller, little pellets. I guess BBs because they're circular. And, and they do vary in coloration based on age or how long they've been produced. So when they're younger, they'll be white to cream. And then as they get older, they're going to get maroon and almost brown when they fall off and then then they'd be much more difficult to observe on top of the soil. Yes. You're going to typically see this at the base of the plant, at the crown. So this is going to be down in the foliage because it's soil borne. So you're really going to need to, and that's why it can be really problematic because you can have Southern blight and maybe not see it above ground until you, so you got to really dig in the canopies if you're not seeing symptoms above ground, but another above ground symptoms would be wilting. So you see, you see a wilted uh, plant, and then because you know, cutting off the water stream, and then uh, so that would be another another symptom as well. And, and we should say that's probably more mid season. Yes. Once you get plants that lap the middles, so that's not something that's going to be shortly after emergence. I mean, this is definitely a little later in the season. That ties directly into the management part then too, because you know southern blight likes high canopy humidity and warm temperatures. So usually when we start getting into, I say July 1st, but definitely mid-July, when I start seeing highs around 95 is when, you know, it can flare up. But then when it gets dry, it can still be pretty prevalent. It doesn't just stop, but it oftentimes can move below ground. Tom, that'd be about the time that all the legs of the disease pyramid get right. Since you continue right. to beat yeah. me over the head, that's on right. That. Yeah, yes, I, I would. You're welcome. I would not disagree with you. Well, you didn't. You didn't state that emphatically enough. But okay, you knew the intent. I did. I was on board. Yeah, that's when the legs connect, right there. And so that's that's typically when we target our first fungicide application uh, in peanuts. So right around for. Southern for southern blight would be about sixty days. So I'd I'd say that's kind of the core block is sixty and ninety days uh, to have a fungicide application for southern blight. So are you timing that? You said sixty to ninety days. Are you timing that off time? Are you timing it off growth stage no. or on field scouting? 
Well, let me let me clarify that. So, okay. a couple of things. I, not sixty two ninety, but a lot of times you'll get you'll have an application at sixty and ninety. So, oh. so two applications. But you know, I always say disease. You know, disease can be very sporadic. So it's always important to scout, and and probably your best indicator is going to be your field history and your rotation. I would kind of tailor that and use that information to based on what your risk is. And uh, generally, you know, a good program kind of spray schedule to follow is the Peanut RX program developed out of UGA. And they kind of have different risk rankings and then they kind of tailor different numbers of sprays. But as far as Southern Blight, I would say – Kind of where we're at now is 60 and 90 days would be really kind of a lower risk program for Southern Blight two applications. Well, wouldn't you say the bulk of our growers are probably in a pretty good rotation strategy, so they're not growing continuous peanut within a given field over a certain number of years? You know, most of our acreage is definitely, you know, rotated two years out or, or at least one year out. Because if I'm not mistaken, the Peanut RX program is outstanding in Georgia. More than likely doesn't necessarily apply to our production system from the standpoint of that we do have a tremendous number of rotated acres and we're not growing a lot of continuous peanut. Whereas I think in parts of Georgia, they are growing a substantial acreage as continuous peanut production system. And that's why that fungicide management system is pretty effective in that state because it does outline things from a risk standpoint based then on number of years in peanut. And just the the history of peanut in fields too is, you know, a lot greater down in that area, you know, where they may have fields that have had peanuts for, you know, 50 years, 40 years where, you know, some of our oldest growers that are growing now that have been growing at the longest are probably early 90s but you know there's a fair amount that have probably been growing peanuts the last 15 years or so so not quite the the history there so yeah just being paying attention to rotation former history and and kind of using that to gauge you know what what's your risk for for disease and, and tailoring your fungicide program you know, according to that. But yeah, I would say as far as scouting and management, you know, that 60 to 90 days is is really important for uh, Southern Blight management. I apologize if you said this earlier, but so the 60 to 90 days, a sequential application, what are our preferred products at that timing? We got a lot of fungicides in peanut now. And so I'd, a couple of things. First, is we have a lot of our fungicide options are pre-mixed. So just making sure that some compounds are better on southern blight, some are better on leaf spot, some only target soil-borne diseases, and some only foliar. So just knowing that is important. But some of the probably better ones on southern blight would be things like Convoy, uh, Alatus. Uh, those are Those are pretty pretty good ones and those are be more higher premium with kind of longer residuals tebiconazole is a cheaper option good activity but short residual would you agree with that tom i would agree with that part of i think knowing what your disease pressure is 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 trying to you know tailor an economical fungicide program to 
based on what your disease to match your disease pressure and maybe mixing up something like tab and an application, you know, and something like convoy, you know, just so you're not going all premium and you may not even have any disease in the field because obviously that's a big, big expense that you may not need. So those are some, some options on for soil-borne diseases. Am I missing anything? Well, I, I would say that the other big soil-borne disease would be Rhizoctonia limerot. And, yes. and I've not been as well-versed in that particular disease, but, you know, obviously the symptoms associated with that disease can look very similar to white mold or southern blight. You'll get a wilting of that actual plant and then digging in the plant canopy, you may not necessarily find white fungus down in there growing at the base of the plant. You're not going to find sclerotia. If the environment's right and it's been wet for an extended period of time, you could have water soaking of of peanut plant tissues associated with rhizoctonia, or you might find more wispy kind of spiderweb looking appearance is what rhizoctonia typically will look like if it's if it's in the right environment and that fungus basically is doing what it does in the right environment it's completing the pyramid see it's not hard to talk about the disease pyramid it just it goes right straight into the conversation kind of rolls right off your tongue if, if you know when to insert that right i think i inserted yeah it that was a good insertion at the there. right yeah. point in the conversation what I hear y'all saying, I think in this 60 to 90 day window, we're not targeting one single pathogen. We have the opportunity to manage a range of diseases with the premixed products that our growers have at their disposal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Rhizoc and Southern Blight, and then also, you know, Leaf Spot can come in at any time as well. So typically early comes in a little later and later's a little late can come in later but there is an overlap there so it's you know not always the case but so always scouting for leaf spot you know is important too peanut can be slightly mysterious in how it produces leaf spots because water on leaves can in some instances produce a lesion that will look very disconcerting for lack of a better term uh, and raise alarm but that's not always caused by a pathogen, and therefore it's not always a disease. And you can even get some issues there when it comes to identification associated with some herbicide applications. So what should folks be looking for from a scouting standpoint then following a herbicide application? That's a, a good point because we have all kinds of things that look like leaf spot and peanut that aren't leaf spot just because we don't have... You know, we get a lot of phytotoxicity from herbicides and peanuts just because we're all conventional there, but which look very similar. Actually, it looks very similar to like speckling from PPO herbicides. Um, I guess I'll start with early leaf spot. So that lesion is typically a lighter brown color and has a yellow halo around the brown region lesion so not always but but typically that's that's how you identify that one and that typically occurs on the top side of the leaf where late leaf spot is going to be a really dark brown lesion almost looks black and doesn't typically i don't know if it ever has a yellow halo around it but it doesn't typically have a yellow halo and that's on the underside that'll mostly be on the underside of the leaf so Definitely important to look on the underside of the leaf for that one. 
Um, but really with, so those are kind of the characteristics of it. But I think the most important thing to identify a leaf, a leaf spot lesion versus, you know, a chemical burn or something is to have a hand lens and look for spores. And that way, I mean, if you see spores on the lesion, you're pretty, pretty for sure that it's, it's leaf spot. But, and I guess it's, it's important to note too, that it's important to continually check for spores too, because I think that's, that's a good question for a pathologist about how many days it takes from lesion to spores. But I think it, the spores come after the lesion, right? That's right. It, and that's going to vary by environment and how much moisture has been present, how much free moisture is present in the form of dew. And the hard part there is, is if it is associated with a chemical injury, you can in some instances then get secondary organisms that will produce a flush on some of those. So looking for spores, you know, it's there's a lot of art to plant pathology, and in a lot of instances it's being able to use the diagnostic information that's out there and then not being shy about calling the diagnostic lab and submitting things to Clarissa over there in Starkville because I think she's got she, – she has really good ability, and she also has some of those higher-end microscopes that definitely help really tease out exactly what you're looking at to make sure that you are making a proper identification and diagnosis before making a reactive fungicide application. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, because those those leaf spots are not necessarily as common in our production system from a north to south standpoint. You know, I'm, I, several years ago, as an example, Alan Hen had identified peanut rust in South Mississippi, and peanut rust, like rusts in most of uh, the other crops in Mississippi, would have to blow in from somewhere else. That's not typically an organism that survives in our production system, and it has to have the proper host present for that. And I realize that's, that's just one example, but most of those other leaf spots, early and late leaf spot, tend to be more rare than, than what we really consider. And so diagnosing those properly is, is really important. Yeah, that's a good point. And I kind of alluded to that a little bit earlier is talking about kind of disease distribution for the state, but the foliar diseases, late leaf spot and early leaf spot are probably definitely going to be heavier as you get closer to the coast in, in general. And then, like you mentioned, it can it can blow in at any time. So, you know, scouting is important. And then I guess management too, you know, you can kind of manage, I guess, a little differently whether it's a preventative application or the leaf spots already present as well. And that's something important because like chlorothalonil or, or Bravo is a common fungicide used for leaf spot, but that that's only a preventative type fungicide as well. So that's not something that you would want to spray. It's not something you'd want to spray and expect, you know, a good amount of curative activity on it. It's only going to prevent it from spreading, I guess is the best way to put that. As usual, we'd like to thank our listeners. We really appreciate the continued support and comments that we continuously get you know follow us on twitter track us down feel free to get in touch with us if you have any specific questions you know brennan and i are always here and available if you've got any questions about plant diseases proper diagnosis to get in touch with the diagnostic lab one of those things because that's that's what we're here for is to help because dealing with plant diseases is not an easy thing and that's something that we would be more than happy to help with i could give you tom's number or i could give you brendan's number 
and that would be the extent of yeah. his. You can just call Tom. <laughs> I could I'd, I could ID the peanut. Yes, you are in fact standing in a peanut field. Here's Brendan's number. Call him. He's the guy that would be in charge of that topic. <laughs> All right, Brendan. Good to see you, man. Yeah, appreciate you having me on. Coming over. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.